Tonight on Arena. We talk to the makers of Baltimore, a film on the life of Rose Dugdale, and its TV review night with constellations breathtaking and married to the game. You can text us on 51551 or tweet at RT Arena or you can watch the show on live stream at rt.ie forward slash arena. A new film, Baltimore, is based on the true story of the English heiress turned IRA operative Rose Dugdale. As a young woman, Rose Dugdale enjoyed a life of wealth and privilege, but her rebellious nature, prompted by inequality, soon leads her down a path to activism. Amongst the political turmoil of the 1970s, her sympathy towards the Northern Ireland conflict evolves into radicalisation, culminating in a violent IRA armed raid on Rossborough House in Blessington County Wicklow in 1974. Starring Imogen Poots and Tom Vaughan Lawler, Baltimore received an Irish premiere at the Dublin International Film Festival this Friday. And I'm delighted to have directors Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler in studio now. Rose, I was reading um, uh, Dave McCullough's essay about Rose Dugdale and he said that it was a life almost beyond belief, really. Where did you first come to know about the life of Rose Dugdale? Um, We stumbled upon her story really by accident and we were making a documentary film. And actually the documentary was about a sense of our own anger in the wake of Brexit because we live in the UK and we've been living in London for over 20 years and we wanted to somehow express the anger that we were feeling and to, um, you know, turn that into something a little bit more positive rather than being consumed by this kind of anger and rage all the time. And we embarked on the making of a an essay film really about myself and Joe and the years we've spent living in the UK and the fact that we now have a daughter, she's 21, and her identity. So our identity as Irish people who moved and her identity as a, you know, second generation Irish young woman who was born in um, London, has an English accent, despite her best efforts. Um, And as part of the research, it was Joe who first came across the story of Rose Dugdale and you know, immediately I would have thought of John Borman's film, The General. And I thought, OK, I knew there was a an art raid on Rusper House, but I didn't know that that wasn't the first art heist on Rusper House, that actually there was a heist that happened nearly 10 years earlier. Um, and it was orchestrated by this fascinating, amazing woman. Um, and so the as soon as we started to dig into her story, we definitely absorbed us into the making of our documentary. And slowly but surely, we realised actually we'd like to make a feature, a narrative feature film about her as well. So she is a very polarising individual, obviously, Rose Dugdale being uh, an IRA member of and having been involved in many paramilitary activities. Um, how did you approach the, you know, bringing her story to the screen, Joe? Well, I think what we didn't want to do was to make a biopic. So we have been asked, you know, previously, did we uh, seek to talk to her? And we very much took uh, a regular position, no more than the makers of The Crown wanted to talk to the Queen. Mm -hmm. You sort of embark on your own uh, research 
but it's not very deep. Uh, there isn't an awful lot written about her. There has been in the last couple of years actually a little bit more. But we started this, you know, four or five years ago in, in earnest. And so what you don't want to do or what we didn't want to do was to get into uh, the biographical accuracy of, of a life. We wanted to kind of look more at the ideas that uh, were pivot points in her radicalization from a young age until, you know, Bloody Sunday, really, which is the big trigger. But before that, there were certain keystones uh, in her transformation, uh, like in Oxford, for example, and the moment she gave all her wealth away. So it's really a portrait of radicalization to some degree, but it's also a portrait of how somebody transforms. And that was really our, our driving point. Now, mm. she was the child of, uh, she mm. was an heiress. She was mm. the uh, child of privilege. Tell us a little bit about her early life. I, she grew up mainly in um, Devon, in a place called Axminster. We actually went to see the house that she grew up in and um, had the opportunity to talk to her nephew. That's as close to talking to Rose Dugdale as we got. Um, a very idyllic life, beautiful house. Her parents were very into hosting her mother in particular, and they had lots of parties and events and, you know, very famous people from the maybe the right wing establishment part of the UK, the political and art scene down for, you know, parties on a regular basis. But she also grew up in the countryside. So, um, you know, uh, hunting was a big feature of their life. And she probably grew up in quite a, a, a with a huge amount of confidence and a fearlessness because from a young age she's on the back of a horse you know with her father with his male friends and her brothers um, in the countryside and um, living a very free idyllic life however um, on the flip side her mother was very strict and expected everything to be done just so um, so how she dressed when she was at home or if they had guests they had to courtesy they were seen not heard um, you know, there was a whole um, etiquette that they had to conform to, so much so, apparently from what we've read, her friends were terrified to go and spend the weekend in her house because the mother was a disciplinarian and expected everything to be just perfect. Let's, let's hear a clip from the film which shows some of the interaction between Rose Dugdale and her mother. Rose is played by Imogen Poots and they're in a gallery. Carrie Crowley plays her mother and they're looking at a Velasquez painting The Kitchen Maid and her mother wants to know why she's drawn to it. It's 1957. I'm 16. I'm with my mother at a gallery. We find ourselves in front of a painting. What do you think about the maid in the painting? I'm drawn to the jug she's holding. I like her positioning in the frame. I think that's what makes this painting so... I don't know. Moving. You find it moving? In what way, my love? I don't know. The truth is, I'm not sure exactly. I don't have the words. It's just a feeling I have to do with the young black girl, the maid. There's something about her being the subject of the painting, not Jesus and his disciple, but her. For some reason, I find that moving. 
Imogen Poots there as Rose Dugdale and Carrie Crowley playing her mother. Uh, that scene, Joe, hints at two things. Obviously, it, it's a hint about the heist that will come about in Rossborough House, but also her empathy towards the underdog. And it go, the film goes on to show how she becomes radicalised. Yeah, I think that's really important that she notices things that other people aren't necessarily noticing. And that, that is often, you know, everybody who's listening may be quite different to their siblings or their parents. You've been brought up in the same household or the same social context, but we're all unique in that way. And she was very alive and alert to all of that. And that just gathered a momentum, mm. it, particularly when she went to Oxford. You can kind of set it within a... Uh, intellectual framework it might start as something quite emotional I don't know why but I feel for these people but I don't know why I feel for uh, poor people in a particular way or have this empathy but then later on when she studied economics and politics she could then articulate that and I think that says something about the complexity of her that she as I said earlier gave her money away to deserving causes in the 60s up in Tottenham where she set up this union for people who needed help with gas bills or electricity or food. It says a lot about her, I'm, you know, so, but that's one por- part of her. There's mm. many other uh, parts to her that we try to explore within the film m- without m- having a moral opinion about it necessarily. OK, let's see. Let's hear another clip because this goes on to show her activism now. She's living in a London squat in 1971. Uh, Rose, played by Imogen Poots, delivers a passionate speech to fellow activists about her anger at the British government and their actions in Northern Ireland. Today on the march, we witnessed the state apparatus in action how it uses violence and brutality on its citizens. We can't sit back and do nothing. We must act. This government has sanctioned internment in our names. It's arrested peaceful political activists and held them without charge, without trial. This is happening in our own backyard. I am angry. I am so angry with this country and with its disgusting behaviour in Northern Ireland. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to put an end to British imperialism in Ireland. And you, are you with me? Are you willing to fight? Yes! To fight and to keep fighting? Yes! Fight! 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 There's Imogen Poots again playing Rose Dugdale in a scene from um, uh, Baltimore. So he, he, as it goes on and she becomes a member of the IRA and they plan the heist in mm. Rossborough House, you do see that Marxist um, steeliness, mm. you know, how maybe ideology can almost kill empathy in a person Mm. was that something you wanted to explore in her because she I mean it it was an awful thing what they did to the Bide Mm. family terrorising them and Mm. she and uh, later on during when they're hiding the paintings she does think deeply about killing Mm. a a man who may be onto them Yeah I mean um it's it's hard to completely fully understand how somebody, a person, becomes driven in that way. I think for Rose Dugdale, they were small steps. Now, I would have thought for somebody who professed to be a committed Marxist, which she did profess to be, and she became a Marxist during her time in Oxford University, 
And to then make the decision to put your money where your mouth is and to literally give all your money away. Very few people do that. I mean, it's quite a thing to do to separate yourself from your past because you're now embarrassed by your past. You're ashamed of it. You understand it in a new way. You understand the imperialist project and how um, Britain got its wealth and where its wealth came from. Um, and you you don't um, just stop at empathy. You want to drive past that into anger and action. And she's just one of those people who went on that journey. And I would have thought that that in itself is a very big thing for her to have done, to have given literally every single penny that she had away. Um, but she wanted more than that. She wanted to be part of something and she wanted to redefine who she was to literally reinvent herself. And um, she was looking for a cause. And as Joe said earlier on, she herself says that um, the horrors of Bloody Sunday brought her to the place where she wanted to be um, and gave her a cause that she could get behind. And she was never going to do it in half measures because she just didn't do it that way. We also feel from what we've and the research we've done that she had there was a certain kind of a glee and excitement, a sense of adventure. And she was an adventurous, curious person, very alive, very engaged and involved. Um, everything was done 110 percent. And she fell in with, um, you know, a particular group of activists like this rogue IRA unit, and they were impatient for things to happen. So what they did, they did without really permission. They went completely rogue. And yeah, I kind of feel it unfolded like um, a scenes from a movie. Um, you know, she wore a wig. She took on this identity as a French woman. Um, the way they planned the raid, of course, like all of these things, you've stolen the paintings and now what? So I think, you know, there was also the fact that they were kind of amateurs mm -hmm. and they really didn't know what they were about. But Joe, for, for many, the, they will think of, you know, the future Rose Dugdale, Rose Dugdale, who attacked um, a, a Garda in a prison and threw boiling water at her. They will think of Rose Dugdale, the designer of bombs. You know, so how much is there is a very uh, riches to activism story here that is very romantic. Were you concerned that you wouldn't glamorise it too much or romanticise it too much? Yeah, I think that's really important that you uh, are true to the complexity of the situation or tr true to the complexity of a human being going on quite a massive uh, transformation in their life and that you need to be careful about what kind of moral uh, positions you're taking. So I think it's important for the film not to draw conclusions. The That's really what the audience that's their job to draw certain conclusions. We'll say two plus two, but I think it's for the audience to give the answer as being four. So, but I think it's important that you're also truthful to her spirit and to show how seductive she was to others or how seduced she was to these big world events that were going on. Mm. Um, but there's also a, a brutality and a violence to it. And a, I guess there's for us... Uh, we were careful not to have the English um, uh, settlers demonised. And so there's a certain sympathy for their position in this as well. So in, in that sense, it's... You mean the Bight family? Mm. Meaning the Bight family. So you have to keep quite a lot of uh, plates spinning, uh, make sure none of them crash to the ground, but also not have 
black and white situations. We see that with the Middle East. It's so easy to get seduced into a binary opposition. The difficult thing is to try and keep uh, both sides and see the victims on both sides and pain and hurt on, on both sides. Mm. So the film has premiered in the States. You've shown it at the London Film Festival, now Dublin. What has the reaction been to it? Um, we, I mean, the most important reaction for us is always the reaction of audiences. So we had our world premiere in a festival in Colorado called the Telluride Film Festival. And um, so it's mainly predominantly an American audience. And um, we were very pleasantly surprised by the level of engagement, the interest in the film and the word of mouth that spread. The festival have this great system of adding extra screenings for films where the screenings keep selling out. Um, and so we started off with three screenings and we ended up with six <laughs> and they were all sold out and the audience reaction was very positive. So that for us is the what we're looking for. What is it like for an audience? Because ultimately, that's why you make the film to share it with an the, audience. The UK was slightly spikier. Again, it <laughs> went down imagine. very well, but there w- was a little bit of reaction. Like mm-hmm. it's a dangerous film. Um, as somebody feeling quite hostile towards us, wanting more clarity about our own moral position. And so I think in Ireland, uh, we're expecting the temperature to be possibly at that point, possibly a little hotter. We don't know. We're, we're kind of very interested to see the reaction. Mm. Well, uh, Joe Lawler and Christine Malloy, thank you very much. Baltimore will be screened in the Lighthouse Cinema this Friday as part of the Dublin International Film Festival. More details from diff.ie. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. The last time we spoke to director Conor Hanratty and actor Katrina Nivaraku on Arena, Katrina was playing the opera singer Maria Callas in Masterclass, a Tony Award winning play from 1995. Now they're back together in the Irish language production of Nepersig, in which she plays the Queen of Persia. Uh, Persians by Aeschylus is said to be Europe's oldest surviving play. It tells the story of the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC, a David and Goliath battle in which the Greeks unexpectedly triumphed over the all-powerful Persians. Nuala Nigolan has translated Nepersic Oskoelga. Cast includes Brigitte Nocton, Seamus Morn, Marion O'Dwyer and it opens at the Peacock Theatre Dublin in early March. I'm delighted that Katrina Nivaraku and Connor Hanrashi are with me now in studio. Connor, uh, this show began as a lockdown project for you. You were doing podcasts about ancient Greeks. Well, yes, this uh, this uh, project has been even older than that. A very long time ago, I wrote on spec to Nuala Nigonal and said, I've had this idea about this beautiful ancient Greek play that has a lot of correlations to Irish poetry. And I think it might work, Oskoelga. And amazingly, she wrote back and she said yes, and she translated it. So I'd had that in my pocket for a while. And then because of COVID and lockdowns and so on, uh, the brilliant Maura O'Keefe, a producer I work with a lot, who made Masterclass with us, uh, suggested, why don't you make a podcast? Because it's very easy to do at home with social distancing, with all of the distancing. And it became 
a beautiful project that, that got aired during the theatre festival that year. Uh, I think during it, I said that it, this was something like a blueprint that might become a future production. And and, and what was the podcast? You telling the story of we, the play or I, you interviewing Nuala or? We, it was somewhere in between that. Um, I introduced what I found interesting about the, the text itself and then also got some fabulous actors who were available to get to a microphone at all over the country, really, um, to play different parts in it. And we had some music composed for it and so on. And it, it became a, a nightly thing during the theatre festival. So there were 10 episodes and each one went out at the same time every night for that. Um, and now it has become a show in, in real life and 3D. Right. So at the Persians, what can you tell us about the play? I mean, it is it's about a battle, but we're not really at the battle. We're back with the um the Persians wondering what has happened when their armies are out battling the Greeks. Absolutely. I mean, the stunt of the play is that it was written by a Greek writer for a Greek audience. But rather than being triumphal of saying, yeah, we won and we trounced them, it, it's an act of empathy where he does the most unexpected thing. There's no Greek names mentioned in this play at all. But instead, he invites the audience to imagine the perspective of those who have left behind, who were left behind on the other side. So it's, technically the chorus of, of Persian elders um, because we have rather extraordinary actresses who are Gaelgors that were available and said yes I thought we can make that a little more interesting by having that but also women are also left behind uh, in these kinds of contexts in terms of war um, and then the the notion of doing it as Gaelga there are amazing parallels between Irish poetry and this weird play it's one of the very very few plays ever Greek tragedies that were about a historical event. It, now there's some pretty supernatural strange things that happen in this play but it is technically based on a historical event this this famous battle that changed the the course of European history. And Katrina, if there is a chorus and you're part of the chorus yeah. but then you come out of the chorus yeah. in the part of the Queen of Persia. So what do the the elders that are part of the chorus and the Queen, what do they know? Do they know at the beginning of the play that things aren't going great for the Persians? Um Yes, they do, uh, because they haven't at the very top of the play. It's uh, stated very, very quickly that they have received no news as of yet. Um, and the fact that they have received no news, uh, I'm afraid in this instance, it isn't that no news is good news. It's no news is very bad news. Um, and so there is a tremor of worry, despite their absolute belief in their own power. I mean, Persia at this point stretched from Turkey to right across to India. India. Yeah. Like this, these were vast, vast lands, nearly an unimaginably large empire. Um, and uh, Xerxes, uh, my son, Athos's son, has uh, gone to, I think, probably prove himself uh, to the, the elders and to the emperor generally. Um, by going to defeat the Greeks on his dead father's behalf because his father uh, also fought a battle there, the Battle of Marathon, which might be the one that we are most familiar with because of the messenger who dropped dead. Um, um, But his father also lost that and he had famously a slave who (laughs) said to him every day, remember Athens. Um, So, uh, yeah, Uh, so the son remembered it instead unfortunately. Right. So then we're back at home again at the father, the long 
The Long Dead Father makes an appearance. Indeed. Uh, one of the most famous things about this play is that this, this ghost raising scene. Uh, so famous that there's another Greek comedy from oh, a generation or so later that talks about, oh, that was great. Yeah, um, we, we remember that happening on stage. So it's a little bit of a challenge then for us to invent a ritual whereby this chorus of Persians with their queen summon up the ghost of this beloved king and he comes back and he sort of wants to know what's been going on. And then he gives them advice, uh, which is what he was beloved for. Uh, he has some suggestions, he's some comments on why perhaps they shouldn't have done what they've done. He gives them advice for the future and then he says, live well. And then he goes. All right. That isn't that easy if they've been defeated by the Greeks, I guess. And then uh, more, more from the king saying, not only that, there's worse to come. Yeah. Oh, okay. And and then the is there a tension then? Obviously, dead father is sure, but then his son has gone off and made a bit of a mess of things. Sadly, so yes. And the the, the whole play, we are waiting for this Xerxes to come back. Um, we have the queen, we have a messenger, we have the dead king coming back. Likewise, so by the time he finally arrives, we're very much ready to hear what he has to say. And the big stunt of this play, in particular, is that this king appears. It's one of very few roles in Greek tragedy that we know of uh, that is completely sung. And what we have done is we have hired a beautiful Shanno singer who is going to sing his whole role on the stage in a, an Irish equivalent that, you know, within our storytelling and musical traditions, I think is, is very rich and very yeah, exciting and to Leisha share. And and Mel Mercier, who's designing the sound, have come up with some very magical things. I, I think the singer is Nisha. Nisha McCoughwell. McCoughwell, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really, you know, just listening to Connor talk there, you know, because sometimes it kind of sounds, it's about a battle that happened a long time ago between people that we don't know that much about or possibly don't care. But actually, the overwhelming effect, the accumulative effect of this piece is to examine the effects of war in a very profound way, like the the visceral in the guts experience of what it is firstly to be left behind when in this instance all men have gone to the front and what it is to receive news that it is not going well um, and and of course it, it traces the implosion of an empire <laughs> and I mean th- both those things are deeply relevant now the, I mean the Persians is one of those plays that is brought out or is often um, performed at times when the world is facing catastrophe, really. And so it's kind of interesting that in some way Connor managed to somehow prophesy this <laughs> by approaching Nolan Eagle 11 years ago. Bush, yeah, he must have been talking to the Oracle himself. Yeah. Yes, because I see how profound the Shano singer could be in that sense of, I mean, the sun must be devastated that he has that he has this failure Mm. but overall how does the Irish language work in this kind of ancient play easily very beautifully certainly I mean I'm very lucky in my life I've spent some time in Greece and I've seen plays from around the world in multiple languages and I always thought we're sitting on a trick here we have a very poetic ancient language of our own what if we sort of let them vibrate with each other? This play also has an ashling in it. There's a poetic vision that appears. It ends with a lament, which is a quina, of course. Um, and that correlation of like two of the cornerstones of our poetic tradition 
and then some shannos at the end in, in the most beautiful contemporary way. I, I think it's very special and I'm, I, it's such an honour as well. I mean, yes, it is Australia. We, there are subtitles across the front. It'll be very accessible, I hope. But just to hear something so rich and so ancient in our own language, like I'm ferociously proud of it. And to get to share this, and I'm just dying for people to come. Yeah, it'll be a re- it's a real privilege as a performer to speak those lines because we were talking earlier and it really is it really is at the risk, you know, it really is two poets talking to each other across the ages. It really is that. And whatever sensibility Aeschylus brings to that description of battle, because I think it is important to also say that Aeschylus himself was a soldier, understood battle, understood what it was to he raise was a, a veteran sword. Of this. He was a veteran. And so absolutely what we are getting is probably the closest eyewitness account of one of the famous battles of ancient Europe. So these things are really important and like it's like watching the myths unfold mm. in front of you in remarkable language and performed by, you know, like Marion Dwyer, Karen Art of Brendan Conroy, like really. You talked about the Queen at the end and then you talk about the Ashling. I think it's you have the Ashling or I, the dream, your character. Yes. Tell us a little about that. Is that about something that, that she dreams about what has actually happened? It is a dream about what is currently happening. So it is where she brings very much the this the the kind of the omenic sense of present into the room to the elders, but it's done through poetic ideation and imagination and the sense that the gods have visited her with this information. So the people, the the audience will be looking at the chorus on stage with the various characters coming out, mm-hmm. performing these uh, individual roles. And as you say, there are surtitles. Um, is is there costuming? Is oh, there, absolutely. It's yeah. a full full production, of course. Uh, Joan O'Cleary is, is doing very beautiful things in terms of marrying various traditions to make a, a world for this play. It's not trying to, to replicate ancient Persia because goodness knows they dressed in so much gold that we would bankrupt the Abbey <laughs> and we're not in the business of doing that but we it, it's a fully visually splendid production the, the the palace is described as being filled with gold and there's little echoes of that in Marie Kearns' set um, but we have the finest in the business we have Paul Kogan we have Marie Kearns we have Joan O'Cleary designing oh, yeah. this it's going to look very special indeed. Well, Nepersig, or Persians, runs at the Peacock Theatre Dublin from the 6th of March to the 6th of April. Further details at abbeytheatre.ie. Now it's time for TV reviews. Three shows tonight. Constellation is a psychological space thriller on Apple TV. Plus, the series tells the story of Joe, a Swedish astronaut played by Noemi Raypass, who returns to Earth after a disaster on the International Space Station and finds that something is not right. And there are missing pieces in her life and changes that she can't ignore. Next up is Breathtaking, a new three-part drama about the chaos 
success of the first wave of the coronavirus and the overwhelming frontline staff who had to deal with the unprecedented event. The series is based on a book, Breathtaking, written by the care doctor Rachel Clark and was adapted for TV by her along with Jed Mercurio, the creator of Bodies and Line of Duty, and actor Prashana Puan Araja, both of whom are also former doctors themselves. And finally, Married to the Game, a six-part documentary series on Prime Video. It focuses not on the professional footballers, but on six women who were dating or married to those Premier League players from renowned clubs like Arsenal, Everton, Manchester City and Nottingham Forest. The series is said to give a unique glimpse into their personal and professional lives. I'm joined now in studio by Chris Wasser and Jen Gannon. So let's start with Constellation on Apple TV. Uh, Jen, this is a new space thriller. It's a complicated plot. Can you Mm. just bring us into the setup? Yeah, it's heavily plotted, I will say. So it's not one of those, you know, TV shows you can watch while you're scrolling on your phone. It demands your full attention and it's a very detailed plot. So the basic outline is that it follows this astronaut named Joe, uh, who's played by Naomi Replace. And she's part of this very small crew that are working on this international space station. And also on board is this mysterious experimental device that, you know, NASA have created. And it's switched when it's switched on to do tests, all hell breaks loose and... Joe has to go out and do repairs and that's very much kind of in, in the mode of gravity the Sandra Bullock yes, film. Yes, very much so. Like. And um, she then, you know, witnesses something dodgy up there that terrifies her and the rest of the crew aboard the space station evacuate and she is left behind to repair the in the escape pod and hopefully go back to Earth eventually. And when she, she does make it back to Earth safely, let's just say, I mean, that is a small spoiler but it's also key to the kind of structure of the show and it, then it kind and of... And key to my upcoming clip so go on. <laughs> So it does jump around between her time, you know, in the space station and her life after she returns to Earth. And when she does make it back to Earth, she finds that everything has changed. And not to give too much away in terms of what things exactly have changed, but she feels like she can't adapt to normal life. And as maybe you kind of feel like she's having some kind of mental episode where she's disconnected from the familiar, including her family that she left behind. OK, well, our clip is from, I think, episode three. And there, Joe Erickson, played by Noemi Raypass, is having a session with a psychiatrist. And there are some of those uncertain things and things that have changed are coming back to her. I misremember things. Such as? Where things are. My car. Okay. I remember it as red, but it's blue. It's a small thing, but... um, Actually, it's quite a big thing. I think, um, I, I think I... I have a piano in my house. And I don't play the piano. Do you have hallucinations? Yeah. What kind? I see Paul. Lancaster. I mean, I... His ghost, I suppose. Sometimes it feels like I'm still up there on the ISS. There, that's Naomi Raypass there from Constellation, a new series on Apple Plus. Chris, uh, from the way uh, Jen described it, I'm kind of with it. I see it's a bit like gravity. She's left behind. She has to sort things out. Then she goes back to Earth. She's confused. 
Yeah, That's it, pretty straightforward. It is. It does actually sound pretty straightforward at the minute. It, it sounds a lot like Alfonso Cuarón's uh, Gravity, but very quickly it turns into Chris Nolan's Interstellar. Um, and it's what's happening on the ground that's quite interesting. While uh, Naomi Rapace's character is trying to fix her rescue pod, you have this world-renowned physicist uh, played by uh, uh, Jonathan Banks. Um, he All he cares about, he doesn't care about the fact that one of the astronauts dies during this catastrophic incident on board the International Space Station. He just cares about his baby, his blue device that's trying to find a new state of matter I think he says Um, and he needs that back because he says this is going to change the world and there are a few little visual clues while he's saying all this as to what sort of changes he means and we start getting into and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because as you heard her character uh, Naomi Rapace's character saying there when she comes back to Earth it is this very human story of an astronaut being in space for, for a long time as a lot of humans have been coming back and not really knowing what to do with themselves and feeling just a little bit out of place uh, Peter Harness, the writer, takes that and turns it into a sci-fi story of what if they were out of place? What if they return to a parallel universe? What if they, if, if they genuinely, they're not misremembering things, they're just in the wrong uh, territory, they're in the wrong life. And that's very, very interesting, but it's also very, very confusing. There were times when I was watching this when I thought it's one thing to confuse your audience, it's, an, it's another to give them a headache. And I just wanted them to tell, I wanted Peter Harness, um, who's a good writer, he's worked on, on Doctor Who, and he's a good sci-fi writer, and this is an original, I think this is the first big original TV story for him I just wanted them to tell his story in a straight line because he's jumping all over the place with different timelines uh, you have actors playing different versions or different characters oh, it's yeah. all a bit mm. too much yeah for you Jen yeah I think like it's beautifully put together and I have to say the opening episode it's directed by uh, Breaking Bad uh, Helmer Michelle McLaren and it's really visually arresting and very gripping but I did lose interest because of what Chris was saying there that is far too convoluted I think the problem is its length as well it's you know eight hour long episodes and sometimes stories they just don't deserve that amount of time and I think there would be less confusion and ponderous plotting if they just had to tighten it all up and I think it would make a great really clever punchy intriguing two hour film but it's for me the idea of having to wade through all this padding to get a sense of clarity about the story just doesn't appeal to me. I mean, it's a show, I think that is a product of peak TV and what we're seeing now where they're, you know, it's about spinning a budget out to tell the longest story rather than the best story, which is very disappointing, I think. Right. And are you confident that you'll get that clarity as you go along? You know, because that sometimes happens, as you say, Jen, with the, this over plotting mm. in series. But then you think, ah, oh, well, I'll let this wash over me because in episode six, I'll surely it'll come, you know, yeah. it'll dawn on me what's happening. Uh, um, I don't think I don't think this show is one that washes over you. Like you were saying, you can't be on you your phone. You have to be away, paying yeah. attention to everything because there are scenes here that just don't make any sense at the time. I was I was quite looking forward to, to finishing it and I need to know how this ends. But then I read an interview with Peter Harness who says that he envisions maybe three or four seasons. And it's again, it's, it's I exactly... I don't want to hear that. No. <laughs> and it's exactly what Jen said. They're trying to tell a long story as opposed to a good one. I, I do agree as well. There's a great two-hour film to be made here. And also Naomi Rapace's um, uh, performance is so good. I wish they had kept that story mm. grounded. I wish it had kept in line with gravity. Although, I should add, that Apple budget is still being put to fabulous oh, it's use. Stunning. It looks like incredible. It's stunning. You can see the amount of money is, yeah. is you know, clear. What do they the do screen. better than, than other... Uh, screeners. I mean, I think in a way they're they're allowing, which is kind of to their detriment as well, they're allowing those showrunners to tell the stories that they want to tell in a way that they want to, to tell them and throw in that budget at them to, to make it look the most authentic or the most stunning the, the way it should do. If Especially if you're doing a sci-fi drama. I think we've seen, you know, For All Mankind and, and Severance, like that kind of those stories and how elaborate and, and gorgeous they can look on the, 
the screen and I think that's something that they do really well and it's very polished and they have great actors you know involved but I do think it's just a case of you need to have a hold on those showrunners as well at okay, the same time. Stars out of five for Constellation. I mean I feel like I, if I was maybe if I'm a, if I was a cleverer person I'd probably get it more but I think I'd give it you know a, a solid three because I think people when they do invest in it they might find something that they and, love. There. And from you Chris for uh, Constellation. Yeah I think the set like prepare to lose your patience with it but uh, great performances it looks great it looks incredible and the ideas are strong I'm just not sure they're very well executed so three out of five for now Now next we have Breathtaking the three part medical drama based on Care Dr. Rachel Clark's book of the same name it was adapted by her along with Bodies and Line of Duty creator Jed Mercurio and the actor Prasanna Puwanaraja both of whom have been doctors in the past so Chris tell us about this drama yeah. we're at the beginning of the pandemic We are at the beginning of the pandemic uh, we're about we're a couple of weeks uh, out from lockdown and uh, we have Joanne Frog is playing a character named Abby Henderson um, who is a medical consultant in a fictional hospital. All the stories that we see and hear in this series are true and came from NHS, uh, NHS uh, frontline workers at the time but the hospital is fictional and the and the, and the characters are seeing are fictional. Um, but she, when we first meet her, when she's first introduced, she's trying on uh, uh, the PPE gear. She's being trial fitted for the very first time and is, is not all that surprising to, to hear that it doesn't really fit or that the, the, the FFP3 masks don't fit her. They're actually made for wider fate. They're made for men, as she remarks at one stage. You know, all, all these costumes are life or the, the, the gear is life-saving for men. Um, we, we then see that she and her and, and her colleagues, they're not, they haven't been prepared for what's about to happen. And they did, they're, they're getting confusing messages from above. We, they start to have patients coming in who have symptoms of COVID, but they're told to ask if they have a travel history, if they've been to China or Italy. They're told to, uh, you know, maybe go, only give uh, COVID tests if it looks as though, you know, they urgently need them. If not, they basically just walk away. And then you have this case, as we know exactly what happened. People literally started to die around them. One chap comes in who's on his phone. He just has a bad cough. He has problems with his chest. He doesn't have any other signs of COVID. So they leave him and a few minutes later, he's in cardiac arrest. And it's just all this chaos begins unfolding around Joran Fraggett's uh, uh, character all the way up until the first lockdown. Uh, let's hear a clip. Here, Dr. Abby Henderson, played by Joanne Fraggett, as you say, sees a group of nurses in the hospital putting on bin bags as protection gear. Where did you get that? Watch Excuse again. me one second. Mm-hmm. It's all right, Mr. Jones. Too long. Guys, guys, guys. Uh, what are you doing? Anyone on here could have it, they're saying. Who's saying that? Chantal told me you had said it had got in the cold zone, so... You... I'm not sure we can start making our own kit. We don't want to panic people. Well, then, no one's looking out for us. We don't know which one of our patients have got it and which haven't. Be honest, Abby, do, do you think we're safe? That's what we're being told. That's the advice from Public Health England. But you would tell us if you weren't sure, no? That's the national guidance, so. That's uh, a Joanna Froggatt there in a scene from Breathtaking. Jen, we had a... a um, uh, the, the writer uh, in talking about Five Lamps uh, Roddy Toyle uh, the night before last and he that that's a 
play from his book of short stories, which is looking at the pandemic. Mm. Is it is a time now? I, I, so many people have their pandemic album or their pandemic novel. Mm. But is it time now to look at the pandemic all plain well, and, yeah. and, and, and tough as it was? I Are we ready for it? I don't know. I mean, I remember when I reviewed Jack Thorne's help on this very show and that starred, you know, jo- Jodie Comer. She was a care worker at a care home during COVID-19 and we had this conversation about whether it's too soon for your COVID dramas and I just think, you know, I think we're still suffering under the weight of, you know, the pandemic itself and recovering from that. There was an article in The Guardian last weekend that said, you know, we're heading into the fourth anniversary of lockdown and we're still not okay and there is this feeling of PTSD when it comes to anything around the pandemic because we lived through it, we're very much still living through it and processing what that means and we were indoors glued to the telly all the time and glued to the news so all of this replaying out in front of our screens again can feel a bit much for people I think and audiences and I can completely understand if audiences are don't want to be confronted by this again during their leisure time right now because you're sucked back into those emotions mm-hmm. all over again. But Chris do some people feel that we are just uh, compartmentalising it and people aren't dealing with it. Yes there are you know investigations in England and there's mm. going to be a COVID uh, tri- tribunal or yeah. investigation here. I mean is it time that we relook at it? I don't think so. Um, I think we watched all of this drama unfold in real time uh, what feels like five minutes ago. It was only four years ago and we're still very much you know we're living in the hangover of it. We're living in the aftershock and there isn't a single there won't be a single viewer watching this in Ireland or the UK that wasn't in some way didn't have their lives in some way altered by COVID and we're still just get it, getting used to that and that's not to say that the show is not exceptionally well made you mm. can tell that it was written by doctors uh, there's no faffing about with the dialogue there's no there's a little bit of melodrama in there when it comes to Abby Henderson's personal life and that's actually really well handled um, but there are times when this series because of all these long in, uninterrupted takes brilliantly directed by Craig uh, Viveros um, there are times when it resembles just almost a documentary you just forget that you're mm. watching a drama so it is well made it is well acted I just don't think and I hate to be one of those people that says that it's not necessary. No television show is ever necessary. <laughs> but I think it might be, it doesn't add anything new to the conversation. Like we, we, we live through this. We don't need to see a reconstruction. It feels a bit like a COVID greatest hits as well. They're, yeah. hitting, they're hitting all the points apart from the banana bread. You know, you're, you're getting nearly yeah. everything there. And I think it just feels like this kind of angry shout at the sky whereas something like I think they want it to be like a Mr Bates versus the post office where it'll provoke outrage Mm -hmm. and you know seeing the negligence of the Tory government played out in a concise dramatic fashion but I don't think it will attract the same viewership as that because I think it is too nebulous and I think in a way people would probably rather not be confronted by the horrors of the recent past in that way Um, so I don't see it having the same kind of visceral reaction. It it seems wrong to ask about stars but to express whether you think people should see it or not. Yeah I think it means well and it aims spectacularly high um, but I just I, I, I don't see anyone sticking with her and, and I do, and I hope there, that other shows won't follow it because I've no desire really to watch them so I'll give it a solid three and, and you Jen, yeah I think Help is the one that I would actually yeah. seek out because it's actually shot like a horror film and it has something to it about the genre and the performances are great but I do think this as Chris said is very solid and it does deserve to be watched so I would give it a three a three for breathtaking um, now uh, finally Married to the Game a six part documentary series on Prime Video that dives into the lives of the wives and girlfriends of some renowned Premier League footballers so Jen is this everything we've wanted to see be <laughs> 
behind <laughs> the glossy life of the professional footballer. I mean, I love reality TV, so this should be for me because it's supposed to be kind of like this mix of Bravo's Real Housewives with like a dash of like something like Netflix's Drive to Survive. And Wagatha Christie. And, exactly. But the thing is, don't call them wags. They do not want to be called wags. Why That's a that? big mistake nowadays because I think on the one hand, they think it's, you know, th- that doesn't make them look like they have any autonomy. It makes them, you know, the wags have a bad name post Baden Baden, post that World Cup where we saw, you know, Victoria Beckham and Cheryl Cole um, in the tiny shorts and the massive hair, the bouffant hairdo and the massive bags. You know, people had this reputation that, you know, the wags were just vacuous. And I think this is something where it wants to look at the life within the gilded cage, maybe perhaps, and how, you know, these women are like the sports version of army wives because they're moving from place to place and they have to adapt to these new surroundings without, you know, without actually being seen as an essential part of a footballer's yes, Chris, life. Yes, it's, it's the transfer window that yeah. we, you know, is always a big talking point in, in the football year. And suddenly the, it shows the implications it has for the wives of, of these, these much wanted footballers. Yeah, it should be fascinating because it's taking place at the time of the year uh, where these, a handful of these, you know, superstar Premier League players um, don't know where they're going to be in September. They've got a month off, but the transfer window is open and for some players they might be moving from Manchester to Spain they might be moving from London to, to, to Saudi Arabia so that is quite interesting um, I think uh, it does show up the players to be everything I thought they were, would be the, some, for the boys in this like their their life is an amusement park and the obscene wages that they that they earn have granted them a, a, a life of luxury it allows them to focus on one thing just themselves so the most interesting characters in it are their their, their, their wives and girlfriends and, and it is interesting to explore how the businesses they've created the family and friends that they have that they're just expected to drop everything the minute that their uh, partners say that they're going to move and there's no conversation there there's no dialogue between between the, 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 the partner and the footballers I just think it's a little bit too shallow it's a bit superficial and also Prime Video kind of marketing this as a six part observational documentary series that's a bit like calling the Kardashians a human interest broadcast it's reality <laughs> I would say it's that they are I think Jen would say are. that it is it's so reality stars out of five for you Chris oh it's reality TV and they should be okay with that I think it's not the worst thing I've ever seen I just I, I expected a bit more from it maybe two and a half out of five. I want more drama. I want more yeah. gossip. Two and a half until they let them go really behind the scenes. <laughs> Chris and Jen, thank you so much. A reminder of the series we're discussing. Constellation is the new psychological space thriller on Apple TV. The first three episodes are out now. Breathtaking is the medical drama series. And the third episode will go out tonight on Virgin Media. And Married to the Game will be available on Prime Video from Friday. That's it for tonight's show. The programme was researched by Leah Murphy and Paula Shields. On sound was Tommy O'Sullivan. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator and tonight's show was produced by Sinead Egan. John Creedon is next after the news at 8.